you may have already seen this, uh, this before, but there was an experiment done a while back, and I've actually encountered this a couple of times. Uh, it, it's kind of a good illustration, which is part of the reason why I'm using it as well. Um, that uh, the setup is that you'll have a video of a group of people, some wearing black shirts, some wearing white shirts, and they have, they each group um, with the different colored shirts, each has a ball. And they're sitting here trying to, to keep these two balls in the air. And the way it's set up is you're, you're asked beforehand to follow one of those two groups and count the number of times the ball gets knocked in the air. So when you're, when you're first asked to do this, you're sitting here and you're concentrating really hard because there's a lot going on and, you know, and okay, was that hit by somebody with a white shirt or a black shirt? And at the end they said, okay, how many times did you know, so-and-so uh, or this group uh, throw the ball up in the air? You know, and people proudly say 10 times or 11 times. And they do that with the other group. And then they said, they'll say, how many of you saw the gorilla? And a lot of people, the majority of people were saying, what, what are you talking about? A gorilla? And they said, yeah, who saw the gorilla? Now, I've probably spoiled it for you. If you ever see this experiment, you'll be looking for a gorilla at this point. Because if you go back and watch the video, if you know to look for the gorilla, it is so obvious. Basically, while these people are sitting here tossing these balls around, right in the middle comes this guy dressed in a gorilla suit, walks in, and he's not even like running through. He kind of casually walks in. He sits there, he goes like this for a while, waving his hands, and then he walks off stage. And it's one of those, once you see it, you're, you ask yourself, how in the world could I have missed that? And yet it's amazing. The whole point of the experiment, of course, is to show how when, uh, when we focus on something, how easily we, we can't see anything else. And today, the group that Jesus is dealing with falls exactly into this category, except in this case, rather than seeing gorilla, uh, they can't see the very Son of God. So, just to set the stage a little bit for you, remember last week, <clears throat> uh, Jesus encountered a couple of different types of folks, and uh, Dwayne did a great job going over all this, but remember, one group was a contentious group. When they saw all the miracles that Jesus was performing, their reaction was, well, yeah, of course he's doing these miracles because he's on Satan's team, right? He's doing this by Satan uh, and by Satan's power. And then uh, there was also, so there was the contentious group. There's also what I would call the clueless group. Uh, remember, that was the, the woman that was praising Jesus completely off topic, uh, just out of the blue said, oh, you know, your mother must be so proud of you, uh, paraphrasing there, but... Uh, and for her, she totally missed anything that Jesus was actually saying. Now, this last group that we're dealing with is what we could call the seeker group, uh, because we're told that they were seeking for a sign. Now, that's good, right? I mean, they're seekers. And in fact, oftentimes we see in the scriptures where you'll have two groups uh, or two examples of a negative followed by a third positive, right? I mean, think about the, um, the 
uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You had a priest who ignored the, the hurt guy, and then a Levite, and then you had the Samaritan. He was the good one. So maybe these are, this is a good group. Maybe it's the one we're supposed to, to be. And after all, you know, they they're have this healthy dose of skepticism. They're testing the spirits, right? They're, they're seekers, and they're looking for a sign. I mean, Moses looked for a sign. He asked God for a sign. Gideon, you know, he, had, uh, he asked for a sign. Uh, and it's not like they're comparing what Jesus is doing to the devil. They're just saying, hey, can you give us a sign? And in fact, if we think about conventional wisdom in the, the larger evangelical church today, you know, what better group can you ask for but a group of seekers, right? I mean, we cater to seekers. Think of all the money, time, and energy that goes into uh, so-called seeker-friendly ministries. Entire churches have built their entire worship service around attracting uh, the seeker. You know, so, uh, and and if, if you look at the results that Jesus is having, he must be doing something right. It says in verse 29 that the crowds were increasing, right? That's what you want. When you got a seeker-friendly message, uh, you know, Jesus is, is maybe doing something real hip here and, and attracting this seeker crowd, at least by our, our modern standards. But Jesus has to go and mess it all up. I mean, what are you doing, Jesus? These are seekers. And yet he says... This generation, and you can almost hear him say, yeah, yeah, this generation is an evil generation. He's not going to get a whole lot of crowds coming, continuing to come with that kind of message. What's he doing? Well, clearly Jesus is not impressed by their seekerness. Um, So, uh, alas, we have yet another group that doesn't quite get it just like the contentious, just like the clueless. And except, in this case, Jesus has even more to say about them. Uh, first of all, notice he says that he calls them an evil generation, or some translations have the word wicked, which sounds even worse somehow. Um, but then he also shows you know, uh, that uh, the one thing that sort of sets them apart, the fact that they're asking for a sign, or a better way to put it is their, their demand for a sign, that God is in no way going to accommodate them. He says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Now, there's several parallel passages, um, including another place in Luke where, where Jesus says something similar, a couple of places in Matthew. And it's in Matthew 12 that Jesus explains what he means by this sign of Jonah. Um, first of all, hopefully everyone's pretty familiar with, with the story of Jonah, right? Jonah says, go, or God says to Jonah, go. Jonah says, no. God says, oh. And then Jonah says, whoa. <laughs> so we all know the story of him you know, being in the belly of the fish, for three days, and then uh, it literally says God caused the fish to vomit him up. And so, you know, perhaps still smelling of fish vomit, uh, Jonah goes to the capital city um, of Israel's, one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Assyrians, um, uh, the city of Nineveh. 
and he shows up, and there's, they have 40 days to repent. And, you know, if you take it at, at face value, Jonah's message uh, is maybe 10 words long. He basically says, in 40 days, God's going to uh, destroy Nineveh. And miraculously, at you know, this, this preaching, the entire city ends up uh, repenting. So much so they not only put sackcloth and ashes on themselves, they put sackcloth and ashes on their, their animals. That's, that's how, uh, how much they want to make clear to God that they repent. Now, this sign of Jonah that Jesus is referring to actually refers to the three days that Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And he says that just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. He's talking about the time between his death and his resurrection. Now, this is interesting because they're asking for a sign right now. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to get a sign. It won't happen for a while, and it'll be after I die and am raised from the dead. Now, this is interesting because this is actually similar <clears throat> to uh, the sign that God gives to Moses. You'll remember at the burning bush when uh, God first tells Moses of this plan that he's heard his people's cries and he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh to <clears throat> lead the people out. Uh, he goes on to say, and I'm going to give you a sign. He says in Exodus 3.12, he says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. So you're thinking, okay, great. You know, let's, let's have some fireworks here. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's like, thanks, God. So your sign that you're going to do this is that once you've done this, I'll be able to look back and see that you did this. You know, it's, 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 kind of, it's always been kind of odd to me that that's the sign that God gives to Moses. Um, and he goes on and gives them you know, the, the cool trick of turning the, the, the staff into a snake and, and things like that. But the sign that he gives them is one that won't even, by the time Moses sees the sign fulfilled, at that point, it's all over. Right? He's, he's already done that. He's already gone through everything God's called him to do. And it's the same way here. Jesus is saying, okay, you're demanding a sign. You're not going to get one until after my death and resurrection. Then you'll be able to look back and see what I was saying. Now, um, <clears throat> the, so God wasn't going to accommodate their demand for a sign. So that's, that's two things now that he's pointing out. One, he calls them an evil generation. He says that God's not going to accommodate their demand for a sign. He goes on further to point out that they're going to ultimately be judged. And this is um, a rather sobering uh, part here. In verse 31 and, and 32, he mentions two, two groups that are ultimately going to be there at the judgment. The first one he says is, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. And he goes on to talk about the Ninevites will also rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn them. 
<clears throat> so what he's describing here is a courtroom scene. And here you have presiding the holy, righteous God. And this generation that Jesus was dealing with is on trial for their, their life, their eternal life. And they could point to various things. You know, I Exhibit A, we fast twice a week. Exhibit B, we tithe. Exhibit C, we pray. Exhibit D, we attend faithfully worship every week. We have all these things we can point to that shows how faithful we are. And yet, who stands up then to condemn them? Basically, a bunch of Gentiles. You have the Queen of the South. Uh, Tim read for us out of Second Chronicles the story of the Queen of Sheba. And we actually don't know much more about her other than the, the passage uh, that was read earlier and then Jesus' statement here. We know that we'll see her in heaven. Jesus says she'll be there and that she will be condemning this generation. You know, and what's the only thing we really know about her is that she took a very long journey. Jesus says she came from the ends of the earth. She journeyed uh, on this long, dangerous journey to seek out the wisdom of Solomon. She was eager to learn. And she ultimately believed uh, once she saw and heard the things that Solomon said. The people in Jesus' time, they didn't have to go anywhere. Jesus is the one that took the journey, and he took a far further journey than the Queen of Sheba did. He went from heaven, came down to impart wisdom. But instead of receiving it joyfully, they just threw up skepticism and doubt. What an amazing contrast. So that's the Queen of Sheba. Then you have the Ninevites. Again, we're talking about the enemies of God's people. They were superstitious. They had very disgusting pagan practices. Um, they were, uh, for those that have seen uh, the Jonah movie, they, they didn't slap each other with fish in the face. I don't know where uh, the VeggieTales people got that from. But uh, we do know that they, they you know, perhaps even practiced child sacrifice and things of that nature. What a contrast. You have God's own people called out from the nations that had the law of Moses that was religious in every sense of the word. You also... So that's the Ninevites. You also had that the one that God used to deliver the message was a faithless prophet, one who when he was told to go, he ran the other way, that God had to literally drag him kicking and screaming and smelling of fish vomit to get the message to these people. Jonah hated the Ninevites. That was the main reason why he, he didn't want to go. It wasn't that he was afraid. It was that uh, he knew that there was the possibility that they might repent and God wouldn't destroy them. He wanted to see them destroyed. What a contrast to the word of God incarnate who was sent and he loved um, his people so much that he was willing to take on flesh, to live as a man and die as a criminal. What an amazing contrast. If anything, the deck was completely stacked against the Ninevites and yet they still believed, they still repented. The deck was stacked in the opposite direction for that generation that Jesus was talking to, and yet they're the ones that ultimately crucified him. So, you know, even though on the surface it looked like they were doing the right thing, dare I say, the religious thing. You know, they, they, 
they were wanting to know more. You know, show us a sign. Show us more uh, so we can know and believe and understand. On the surface, it may look like they were doing the right thing, and yet we have, from Jesus' comments and his insights into their heart, we knew what they were thinking. So we clearly don't uh, want to be like this crowd. They're, they're a warning to us. They had put themselves as judge over Jesus rather than recognizing that they were the ones on trial, that they were the ones. They were blind to that reality that even as they were asking for a sign, those words would be used against them eventually. They were the ones being judged. And let's think for a moment about this generation that we're talking about. You know, these are a people that spent their entire life faithfully going to worship each week. They listened to God's word read all the time. Uh, They were around God's people all the time. It's astonishing that when God's own son appeared to them, that they didn't immediately recognize him. And in fact, they were told repeatedly in the scriptures throughout the Old Testament, they were told to seek God's face. There's so many references. I'll just just mention a few here. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord that, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And we'll later on in, in verse 8 of Psalm 27. When you, Lord, said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Just one more. Psalm 105, verse 3 through 4. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. They had been told generation after generation after generation, seek the face of the Lord. Seek the face of the Lord. So that when the face of the Lord actually appears to them in the flesh, they should have been able to recognize it. Here he was. They could actually see his face. And yet they didn't recognize it. And, you know, I get it all the time. It's pretty clear, I think, to folks uh, which of my children are mine. Um, You know, they all kind of look like me. I I, I hate to say, I I mean, it's just, you know, um, they they look a little bit like Christina, but we hear it all the time. Oh, they, they definitely look like you. And, and it's that way, right? When you see a Talbot child, yep, there's a Talbot child. I mean, it's, you can see Nathaniel and Katie, right, in, in the children, or a Soderbergh child, or a Resentes. I mean, even, uh, it, it's amazing to me, even children that are adopted still take on the mannerisms, and, and they just look like they're part of that family. You can recognize um, in the, the children the, the parents. And those that were seeing the very Son of God should have been able to recognize the Father, and yet they didn't. Instead, they crucified him to their shame. In fact, um, we see the early uh, disciples bringing this up again and again, because they were dealing with the same generation, right? You, uh, you see in Acts uh, 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon, 
in, in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Stephen also had a similar rebuke. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. In fact, uh, that earned for Stephen uh, 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 a stoning death. They, they, as soon as they heard that, they couldn't take it anymore, and they ended up killing him. But this generation should have been the one to joyfully uh, receive Christ and uh, recognize that he was their king and their God. And in fact, we have one that is a notable exception that proves the point. Simeon uh, wasn't too long ago uh, after, after the, the Christmas season that we, we looked at Simeon in Luke chapter 2. You'll remember uh, the scripture says that he was a uh, just and devout man who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, you know, again, he was following what David was saying. I come to your temple, Lord, to look and see. I'm looking for you. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon, again, is the exception that proves the rule. He wasn't the only one in his generation that was looking for the Christ, but he actually saw him. He had the eyes to see him. And it goes on further in this um, interaction with Simeon. Jesus and Mary marveled at these things and um, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, that the hearts, thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So Simeon got it. Simeon understood that Jesus, um, there was something special about Jesus. And we're told that he was able to see this because he had been given uh, the sight to see. So what was the problem? Why is it that they didn't get it? Why is it that they couldn't recognize him? Why isn't it that they couldn't see him? Well, maybe it was Jesus' fault. Maybe he was being a little too obscure, a little too coy. Well, in response to that, we have verse 33 here. Jesus uh, goes on to teach. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, um, you know, we we're, we're typically don't go around lighting lamps these days, but sort of a, a way of understanding this, at least as far as I can tell, um, imagine that you suddenly have a blackout, 
and now you're, you're scrambling around looking for a flashlight. And of course, you, you rummage around in this drawer, and this drawer, and this drawer, and this drawer. Ah, finally, okay, here's the flashlight. Turn it on. Of course, it doesn't work because the batteries are dead, or there are no batteries. Somebody took them to use on the TV remote or something like that. Okay, great, I'll go over here, rummage through here, and find the batteries, we're out of batteries. Okay, everybody in the dark, just hold on, wait a minute, I'm gonna drive to the store, go get some batteries, come back, get the batteries, put them into the flashlight, turn the flashlight on for a brief moment, every, everybody can see again, then you take that flashlight, throw it under the heaviest blanket you find so you can't see the flashlight anymore. It's absurd, right? It, that would never happen. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. We go to a lot of trouble. And, and back then, of course, I mean, burning oil was expensive. And, and um, you, you would only do that because you need it to see at night and such. And he said, why would you go to all that trouble and expense and then not show that light? Why would you put it in a cellar? Why would you hide it under a basket? No, when you have a light, you put it out there so that everybody can see it, so that everybody can see by it. So the question then becomes, well, what's this light that Jesus is referring to? Now, this is a, a, a parable, this is an analogy that Jesus actually uses quite a few places. And oftentimes, he's using it to refer to us. We're the light, and we shouldn't be hiding our light. But I'm pretty convinced in this particular context that this this use of this uh, example, Jesus is actually referring to himself. Uh, and in fact, we know that uh, John the Baptist referred to Jesus um, as the light. He's the light of the world. Um, John tells us that there was a man that came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. So he, he's talking about John the Baptist being the witness um, and then Jesus being the light. Um, he says, uh, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So what we have here, Jesus is saying, you, 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 you create a light, you, you light a lamp, you don't hide it. And in other words, Jesus, as the light of the world, has come to bring light, and he's not hiding. It's not as if he's, he's dr trying to be really obscure and, and hide himself. No, you can't get much brighter. It's very uh, obvious to those who can see. I mean, think about it. All the miraculous signs surrounding Jesus, you know, starting with his birth, right? Um, nobody uh, other than Jesus was ever born from a woman, uh, a, a virgin. And not only did you have the virgin birth, but it was in fulfillment of so many biblical prophecies that told you exactly the time and the place where he was going to be born. And... His birth was announced by angels. And you then have the visit of the Magi. Are we getting it yet? I mean, it's kind of obvious. There's something special about, about Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, at his baptism, you had the voice of God saying, this is my son. I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's pretty clear 
that what's going on. You also had the ministry and preaching of John the Baptist. You had Jesus' own preaching, his own words, his own teaching. And we haven't even gotten to the miracles yet, right? I mean, think about that. You have somebody that turns water into wine. You have someone that just at a touch, at a word, can heal someone. You have someone that can cast out demons, walk on water, calm storms, feed thousands. I mean, I can go on and on. The light was shining so bright, it's, it's astounding that they weren't able to see it. He's clearly, clearly uh, has so much that demonstrates that uh, he could, that he was, in fact, uh, the Son of God. That it's almost funny, comedic, in a way, if it weren't so sad, comedic that they ask for a sign, right? It's like, okay, yeah, I get you can walk on water. Yeah, I get that you can feed thousands of people just with a couple of loaves of bread. What else can you do? What else do you got for me? Right? It, 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 it doesn't compute. So the problem's not with Jesus. The problem's with them. And Jesus' statements here in verses 34 through 36 make it even clearer. Um, and I'll admit to you, I've, I've always found this particular um, passage uh, rather curious. I, I've never quite understood it. I'm not 100% sure I, I still understand it, but I, I'll, I'll give it a go here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 34, Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I've always found that to be kind of a, a strange statement. Um, not exactly uh, clear. But I think... I'm pretty sure what, what he's going for here is that your eye, what, what comes through your eye is what ultimately uh, enlightens you or endarkens. Did I, is that a real word? Endarkens? Yeah, we'll make it a real word. Or, or darkens you. Uh, and it's, it, you know, we, we'll hear people talk about, you know, your eyes being the window to the soul. Um, because it, it, oftentimes you can, get a better sense of where a person's coming from if you actually look them in the eye. You can see what's going on behind. But Jesus is implying that it goes the other direction, too, that ultimately what passes through your eyes is what um, either brings you closer to him or brings you further away. It either fills you with light or fills you with darkness. And, you know, we even, we even see this just in a general way, right? There are some people who are always positive, right? They're always looking for the brighter, bright side of things, and lo and behold, they usually are able to find, um, find positive things. In contrast, those who are always negative, always looking for negative things, there's always going to be something you can find that's negative. So, like the experiment that I mentioned at the very beginning, we get so focused on certain things, we can't see anything else at the exclusion of that. You know, if you think about magicians um, that you know, do stage tricks and things, they, they count on that. They count on the, the capacity that we have to focus on things. So they'll do something over here, or while over here they're, they're performing the real you know, so-called magic, right? 
um, they, they count on that. So here, what you have you know, is the, the, the principle that you are what you seek. That what you seek after, that's what you become. And you become it more and more. So here you have Jesus, the light of the world, shining right in their eyes. And it's as if they're saying, nope, still can't see it. And, you know, like taking that flashlight and shining it right in somebody. Don't, kids, don't do that. But, you know, shining it right in, in a person's eyes and they're saying, nope, still don't see it. Nope, sorry, still don't see it. They, they could not see it. And that's what's sobering. If you think about, again, they're going to be judged and found to be condemned because of this. Jesus said that if you have even a mustard seed of faith, that's sufficient. But these people were in total darkness. They were full of total darkness. They didn't even have the smallest flicker of light. That's a very sobering reality. The truth is they were so blind that all they were seeking in the world um, wasn't going to help them. They were merely seeking their own agenda, trying to deal with God in their own terms. And we know from another uh, story that Jesus tells um, that uh, this is the case. Uh, you'll remember Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was the, the poor homeless guy that uh, was sat at the gates of this rich man day in, day out, and he was completely ignored. And they both end up dying, and the rich man is down in hell burning uh, constantly, and he's, so, he's suffering so much, he just wants just a little drip of water to put on his tongue just to relieve his suffering. And... Um, and ultimately, he's told, no, you, you know, you've made your choice, you're there. And so then he says, well, I have five brothers. Can you at least send somebody to, to tell them, to warn them? I understand now. Can you at least warn my brothers? Uh, he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that you may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, he's, he's talking to Abraham, he says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So the sad reality is, even this sign of Jonah that they're being given, namely the resurrection of Christ, uh, is not going to be sufficient. They're never going to see it. Even if Jesus raises from the dead, which he in fact did, um, it's still not enough. This is very sobering because we're talking about a matter of eternal life, eternal death, where we're going to spend eternity. And what do we do with all this? Well, first thing, I, I, I want to go back to this notion of seeker services. It's interesting that until relatively recently, we've treated... Um, a worship service is an opportunity for the people of God, those who already belong to Jesus, to gather together to do the, the joyous work of exalting the Almighty Lord. So we've jettisoned now millennia of biblical practice and introduced altar calls and um, these seeker-friendly messages and manipulative, emotionally manipulative messages and consumer-driven slick packaging. 
we've warped everything around this mythical so-called seeker who's supposed to kind of wander in and get a little teary-eyed and, and be part of the club. Um, how can we ever expect them to truly surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of the Lords if we make unregenerate so-called seekers the center of the universe? To say, okay, it's all about you. It's not. It's all about him. It's all about him. But that, at least here, I'm not worried about that. You know, we, we are um, focused on, on him and our worship and such. Um, and, and so I bring the question back to ourselves. What does this mean for us? Now, I, did, I certainly don't want to be the cause of doubt for anybody's salvation. But this is a warning to us. We do need to be complacent. You know, we're not the ones going out there saying that Jesus' work is the work of the devil. Right? We're not the ones that are going out there sort of uh, going about sort of clueless to what's going on. We're the ones that are like that generation, at least in terms of their faithfulness and doing all the religious things. And in fact, um, it, it's uh, kind of a danger of being so liturgically focused. We get complacent of going through the motions. So the question is, what are we seeking after? What are you seeking after? What am I seeking after? Would we recognize God when he stares us right in the face? Or are we so wrapped up in our own agenda that, and, and live in a world of our own creation that we wouldn't even be able to see him in his work? This is for us. This is for us. Um, and I, I say this you know, uh, trembling uh, for myself as well. Are we actively seeking his kingdom and his righteousness as he commands us to do in Matthew 6.33? Are we seeking his face? Now, one thing I do have to address, does that mean we, we shouldn't question our beliefs? Does this mean we shouldn't ask questions of God? Well, Luke actually presents a very interesting contrast here uh, at the very beginning of his gospel. You have two miraculous births, both foretold by the angel of Gabriel, and yet two very different outcomes. You'll remember you have Zechariah, who uh, was there in the temple, and God came to him and told him that his wife, who was Elizabeth, who was well beyond childbearing age, was going to have a child. And Gabriel's, or I'm sorry, Zechariah's response is, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, you could just look at that just um, as a plain reading. He's just saying, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure how that's going to work out. And just very innocently just saying, I don't understand how that's going to work. And yet, Gabriel uh, says, because you did not believe my words, I'm going to make you mute. And we know that he was mute until John was born. Now, fast forward a little bit, and in Luke 1, uh, or, or a little later in Luke 1, you have Gabriel coming to Mary and saying, Mary, you've been chosen by God to have this miraculous, uh, to give this miraculous birth to, to Jesus. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Again, on the surface, the statements look almost identical. How will this be because this isn't natural, right? And yet, you, you know, if you, if you weren't familiar with the story, you might be waiting, okay, what, what's Gabriel going to do to Mary? And yet, he doesn't. In fact, he goes on and, and patiently answers her question. So, clearly, 
there are times or ways in which you can ask questions of God, and yet um, it's not, uh, in certain instances it's appropriate, other places it's not. And ultimately, it comes down to in our seeking answers if it's from a position of pride or humility. Because there's a way to ask questions, there's a way to doubt um, and, and uh, put God on the spot, so to speak, and do that out of an attitude of pride, because you're wanting to maintain control. Are you expecting God to answer on your terms, or are you asking out of humility, saying, you know, I don't think I have this all figured out yet, but I'm open to seeing what answers you have for me, God. And I, I want to bring this up especially for the younger folks here. Um, I think you especially need to pay attention to this. I mean, this applies to everybody, of course. But the reality is, if you haven't already, you're going to get to a point where you ask yourself, do I really believe this? You know, is this something, I, I know I've heard this most of my life or my, my whole life, am I really um, believing this or, or am I just going along with what I've been told? And, in fact, we, we have kind of a deadly combination here. We've got a lot of smart, successful, accomplished young men, men and women who've been taught to be very self-reliant. And that's good. I mean, that, that's obviously very good. But they've also been brought up in the church. They know all the textbook answers. Uh, they're used to wearing Christianity like a comfortable pair of old sneakers. That can be a dangerous combination because... You, you, you don't know necessarily um, how that's going to shake out. So there's really two attitudes when it comes to this, this kind of questioning and doubt. One says, I just need a little bit more evidence. You're given it. Okay, now I need a little more. Now just a little more. And, and if you find yourself always continuing to question, always asking, you have to be honest with yourself. Is it ever going to be enough? What would it take? Okay, the sun comes up consistently every morning. The earth has a breathable atmosphere. You have food and water and other things supplied to you to keep your survival, keep you surviving. What more do you need? All right, do you need a choir of angels showing up, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him? Do you need Moses and Elijah rolling out the red carpet, Jesus rising from the dead and asking, now do you believe? You know, what more do you need? You were born in a time where, where Christianity has flourished in a nation that has deep historically Christian roots. You were born into a Christian family. You were baptized into the covenant community. You were taught at home the stories of the Bible. You were brought under good biblical preaching week after week after week after week. What more do you need? In reality if you constantly are throwing one thing after another up, you know, are you actually saying, rather than, I want to know this, I want to understand, are you just saying, here's a hoop, God, jump through it. Okay, good, now jump through this one. Now jump through this one. That's the sovereign creator of the universe you're demanding that of. Try lightly. There is a way and a place, a very appropriate place, for asking questions, for, for dealing with doubt. Contrast that attitude with the attitude of the man that Jesus met in Mark 9. You might remember he had a, a child 
that every time um, the, the, there was a spirit that convulsed him and he fell on the ground and, and would foam at the mouth. And Jesus asks the father, he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. And often he's thrown them both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' response is, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. So the next part that's the most critical. He says, help my unbelief. In other words, he recognized, yeah, yeah, I believe, uh, but maybe I don't believe enough. Help my unbelief. Completely different attitude. One who defiantly says, yes, I have doubts, and until you satisfy them 100%, I'm not going to believe. Versus someone who says, yeah, I have doubts, but I'm willing to work through it. I, I, you know, be patient with me. Give me time to sort this out. Pray for me. Help me to understand better. One attitude, the problems with God. The other, the problems with you. And that makes all the difference. So for all of us, we should certainly be asking hard questions. That's part of seeking. I mean, David, again, one who uh, sought the face of God, is constantly asking God questions. Very hard, appropriate questions. Why is it that it seems like the, the wicked always prosper? Why, Lord? I don't understand. You know, or Job, in the same way. You know, why, is it, why is it that I'm suffering? I haven't done anything wrong. These are all uh, appropriate, hard questions, but they're all part of uh, cultivating one's relationship with God. If you're looking and seeking to find another excuse, you'll find it. If you're looking to find another way to tear things down, you'll find it. And you'll keep finding it. And you'll keep finding it because that's what you're seeking. But if you're truly looking for answers with a humble heart and willing to see where that goes, you'll find those as well. God promised, seek and you shall find. Let's pray.